This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is like catch up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Question. Go for it. When was the last time you did a phone interview? I have done one, but I can't remember when it was or who it was with. It's probably because you've had the good fortune of just meeting with people in real life. I would. Oh, I do remember. It was probably Marissa Louie of Animoodles. So I was just thinking, like, it'd be interesting if we took the concept of these phone interviews, but made them open to the community. So then they can basically both be a fly on the wall, but also participate within the editorial process. Like but I just, just don't think the- they're that interesting. Well, I mean, that's for someone else to decide, I guess. When I think about how my interviews go, those are not the things that I would want someone to be sitting in on. I would rather them listen to the final thing that's been edited. Interesting. When I was sitting in on a call with Elphick and uh, Rory from Lander, which we'll talk about at some other point, it was just interesting to hear two people very passionate about their craft, which is music, just kind of break it down and hold this really interesting conversation. Like I didn't really have to say anything, nor did I have anything to add, but just hearing them talk about stuff was interesting. But I guess it's also, if you took someone that was passionate about the subject, then maybe that would in itself provide a different approach. I think your example is atypical of what we do. One, because it's Elphick who doesn't usually do the interviews for longer features. Not that he's not capable, but like the type of work he does, you know, that's not playing to his strengths. Whereas what you mentioned with Rory of Lander does play to his strengths, which is talking about the thing that he loves. I interview a lot of people about subjects that I am not an expert in or necessarily super passionate about. Oh, okay. I'm passionate about interviewing that person. I'm just not an expert in their field. And also the way I interview Again, this is so subjective, right? It really depends who you bring to the table. But the way I interview, I just listen a lot. I ask very short questions. I don't give a lot of prompting. So that would not be interesting. And I let people go on forever. Like it wouldn't be an interview if I wanted someone to be listening to it. Then it would be a session. Then I would be thinking about there is an audience for this. But I guess that's the thing is like, I think from a, from an editorial standpoint, thinking about how that plays out, I don't think that stories need to be boxed into, it has to be this or it has to be that. Like, I think there's some sort of hybridization that can occur. I also think people speak so differently when they know they're talking to one person versus if there's a bunch of anonymous people. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier today. I'm not saying this doesn't work. I, I guess I am kind of saying it might not work with me as the interviewer. Yeah. Anything else going on with you? One of the more recent 
making briefings, the one that went out, what, it was Monday actually, got a lot of good feedback and people interested in that piece that Alec did about late bloomers. Well, conveniently, that's my subject today. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think people are feeling the pressures maybe of what it means to not be as successful as you think you should be. Albeit that's all psychological, right? Wait, no totally sort of like don't get into this because we're going to get into oh, it. Oh, sorry, you're right. Wait. Anyways, I don't like your feedback. Answer a, a lot of different we people. have to answer another like IG question. Okay. So this comes from at Skerbs, S-K-E-R-B-Z. The balance slash preference of groceries, meal kits, going out, and delivery apps. This is hilarious because it totally kind of intersects with everything I was going to discuss in regards to sort of my intro as it pertains oh, to my Oh, were we going to talk your about diet. your diet? Well, I, it's weird to call it a diet. It's more like a lifestyle change. Well, um, diet as in like the food you eat. Yeah. So a few, a few weeks ago, there's a new study that came out discussing how the world will struggle to feed its global population by the year, I think it was 2050 or whatever, right? Wait. We talked about this on this podcast. Yes, the flexitarian diet. Okay. <laughs> Ever since then, I've been more mindful of the amount of animal proteins I've okay. consumed. And I started changing up my diet a bit. And I, I, I was the kind of guy that would probably eat some sort of protein source every single meal. And it would often be, let's say half, half of the overall meal itself. And then since then, I was cooking at home and making meals that were super simple and super basic, like extremely utilitarian. So I am looking at your Finsta <laughs> and there's this really terrifying photo, just incredibly terrifying. The most terrifying. recent one is the most relevant one, I'd say. Okay. It's not the most recent one. I'm looking at the one in the pink bowl. It a hundred percent looks like vomit. No, but that was a bad one. That, that has, that's not really part of the okay. Diet, I'd say. Okay. Oh, I got this. I got this. Caption, more bangers with Chef Eugene with an accent on the E and a trademark sign. Recipe, soak some chickpeas overnight, boil them, add some mother canned shit, grab some old crusty rice and put some eggs on top. Hashtag that food not cray. For reference, Eugene's wife is that food cray. It doesn't look bad. So yeah, like, but that's the thing. It's like, it's predominantly rice, beans. And three eggs. Corn. Although I, I don't know how sustainable corn is, but whatever. That's more of a texture adder. But no, like it's been interesting because part of me has always been conscientious of eating animal protein because, oh, like you need it for sports and whatnot. And then now I think about it, there's no harm in trying it, especially if you're curious what a diet to sustain a global population could look like, or at least a takedown version of it. Mm, I eat really little meat. So I feel pretty good about that. But to actually address this question, which is balancing groceries versus meal kits versus going out versus delivery apps. Now that I live in London, I am 80% of the time cooking. It's pretty good. I'm not saying my cooking is good. To clarify, my cooking is average. <laughs> the fact that I am cooking is good. I don't use any delivery apps and I'll go out usually when I'm super busy and packed and don't have time to cook. And then I'll, I'll just grab a sandwich. Well, 
meal delivery kits and delivery itself, like the the packaging and waste was too yeah. much for me. Like I yeah. couldn't do it anymore. So that's why I was like, hey, I'll start making food at home. Yeah. I bought this like collapsible lunchbox with this on the go utensil and it collapses. And then there's like this kit of utensils that can that's dismantle. Really good. Like you can dismantle this kit. Yeah. Other question from at Oh My Geekness. Writing, semicolon, the role slash power of editing, semicolon, content critique. The part of this question that I'm going to address is the role and power of editing because this is a skill I actually feel like I'm good at. (laughs) More so than writing, I feel that I can look at a piece and get a good idea of what the writer's intentions are and then try to work them towards that goal. And I like Mm -hmm. that a lot. I was thinking about this. I asked this question. I was at dinner and the question that came up was someone had watched like a four-hour movie and I was like, do you think it's a bit self-indulgent or do you think it's a bit selfish for people to put out a piece of content that long? Because at some point it's like, it's more about you than it is about the Mm -hmm. viewer. Interesting. I think also editing teaches you to not be precious. Maybe there are things that are four hours that are good, but... Length seems to be an indicator that maybe this didn't go through a rigorous enough editing process. Unless the length is the point. Anything you want to add? Um, No, that's about it. Basically, all the stuff we talked about in the intro, I think will have some relevance to my topic. So I'm I'm kind of interested to see how that plays out. That's our specialty. Let's do it. Oh, one, one last thing. Oh. Yeah. Hopefully, by the time people listen to this, the new site will be up. <laughs> Hopefully. You just want to throw that in there. Are you just like trying to speak it into existence? Yeah, okay. I am. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this, dear listener, the new website is up. You realize that people listen to podcast episodes like years in the future. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. I do. Got it. You're right. Let's get into your subject. Okay, so I actually had a crazy difficult time picking a topic this week. I was trying to combine things I was interested in, things that were beyond the superficial aspect of just, hey, this is what happened, let's talk about it. Like actually trying to introduce some new thoughts. And for better or worse, I I landed on Nike's most recent spot, Dream Crazier. And it sort of intersects whether it's that cohesive in terms of connection, I'll let you be the judge. But it reminded me of, I think, a link we shared a few days ago about how the world might run out of people, which is a counter argument to overpopulation. Before you get into that, can you explain the spot a little bit for anyone who hasn't seen it? Yeah. And I'll also just use this opportunity to play an audio excerpt from it. If we show emotion we're called dramatic. If we want to play against men, we're nuts. And if we dream of equal opportunity, delusional. When we stand for something, we're unhinged. It's super, it's gonna beat the cop down. When we're too good, 
there's something wrong with us. And if we get angry, we're hysterical or rational or just being crazy. So the video spot by Nike highlights women who have achieved amazing feats, including Simone Biles, Ibtahaj, Mohammed, Chloe Kim, members of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, and Serena Williams. The voiceover is also done by Serena Williams. Yes, and the voiceover is done by Serena Williams. Yeah, have you watched yeah, it? Yeah, I watched it. I didn't pick it because yeah. I was afraid that yeah. we would talk too much about women in sports and then I would get emotional. So that's why I didn't choose it. So I chose it because it actually was pretty pretty impactful and like it was pretty emotional. For the guy that's often devoid of emotion, I was in fact emotional over this. So how does this tie into this other piece that came up? It was the world might actually run out of people. And that story actually dissects that contrary to popular belief, we might actually be regressing in terms of population or the population growth will slow down dramatically. I believe that. So one of the most interesting parts of it, I, I think that if you're really interested in the topic, it's, it's worth checking out this interview that's on Wired. John Ibbotson. Oh, it's with a author of Empty Planet. Author and a, it's like a yeah a journalist and a scientist or something. Anyways, so John Ibbotson mentioned that demographer, someone who basically looks at demographics, yeah. Wolfgang Lutz suggested that the most important reproductive organ for human beings is your mind. And this is actually- <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like besides the obvious. Yeah. What do you mean? Besides like the organs you actually use for reproduction. Oh, you, you can't make a bit. So I'm sorry. So it's a completely stupid that, joke. I definitely understand the quote. Okay. Keep going. Where was I before I was rudely interrupted? Ibbotson goes on to say that if you change how someone thinks about reproduction, you change everything. Based on his analysis, the single biggest effect on fertility is the education of women. The UN has a grim view of Africa. It doesn't predict much change in terms of fertility over the first quarter of the century. But large parts of Africa are urbanizing at two times the rate of the global average. If you go to Kenya today, women have the same elementary education levels as men. As many girls as boys are sitting for graduation exams. So we're not prepared to predict that Africa will stagnate in rural poverty for the rest of the century. So the bigger idea there is the power of the mind and, and knowledge and education, right? Saying that the most important organ for reproduction is your mind is a bit of a weird way to phrase it. But yeah, I have heard of this yeah. and I understand it. That when women are better educated, are given more opportunities, then they wind up having fewer babies because they don't have to. And that's like not the only route their life can take. Exactly. And also there's another part of this interview where they talk about the proliferation of mobile phones for women in India, for example. So that's another sort of gateway towards education. You could argue what type of things are they consuming? That's obviously a whole nother can of worms. I don't want to get into that. But what I thought was fascinating was looking at the last, let's say, handful of decades and where we are going forward in terms of what is expected of women, whether it's education, sports, et cetera, stuff like sports have traditionally been an afterthought for women, right? And that's kind of what the video spot yeah. discusses. It says that all these female athletes were deemed quote unquote crazy for pursuing these goals and exhibiting certain characteristics that would be very much normal for men, right? Yeah. 
I look at the video and yes, I understand it's a Nike spot, but I think the underlying message of pushing females and empowering them to question traditional roles and things that have been seen as taboo, I think is really powerful and impactful. And it brings into light what I mentioned before about education and the mind. What females were previously told as being impossible are a possibility. This is obviously showing that, right? Yeah. So what does it mean for the future? That for me is kind of where, where no one really knows. Because for me, like, I know I've discussed this at length, but sport to me is kind of this great equalizer where everyone sort of enters the pitch, the field or whatever, the game with a general understanding of how to play the game as well as what are the rules, right? I actually saw this tweet recently. I should have saved it to send to you. I I disagree with the tweet, but the person was saying that they don't think sports, they they basically don't think competitive sports should be a thing. Yeah, but I, I, I mean... I think that's spoken from someone who's never played competitive sports. Yeah. Well, and their but point was that it was also, like a fabricated, arbitrary way of showing ranking. Arbitrary? How is it arbitrary? Well, though? arbitrary, like it's based off of your physical body. Some things are some biological. Sports, I would say parts of it are biological. Some some parts. Correct. And like that negates certain people just because of the way you were born. Yeah, I mean, I, th- this is a whole other conversation. I'm not going to go well, and dismantle this tweet. I just wanted to provide this alternative yeah. where some people might think that sports don't have value. Yeah, well, I think the thing that about sports is that there's so much ongoing failure that happens within sports that it doesn't, it's not like the real world where mistakes are happening Every so often, like you make mistakes every single time you go out there and it forces you to kind of understand. That is interesting. Like the repetition of mistake making happens so much that it forces you to understand what does it mean to make a mistake and how do you move past it and how do you learn from it? That's definitely true. And I think that's important even if you don't play in a competitive sport. Essentially, if you do anything, kind of physical activity even on your own with a goal in mind such as running then that comes into play yeah i mean there's a lot of debate around what role competition plays and you know that tweet obviously whoever tweeted that isn't a fan of it but there is something where whether that competition is internal or external i think there's a lot of potential in it like you were in a team that was racing dragon boats mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah, like, that was. For someone that's not like an overly competitive athlete, what did you learn from it? I mean, there is something really, I, I, there's something scientific about it, but when you are performing and you perform really well, you feel really good. I don't know how to explain it. You obviously know better because you have a longer history of playing competitive sports, but like when you're racing before and after a race, you feel like you're high. Like it's, it is like a drug because of how good you feel. So that was really interesting. And Mm. then for us, especially because you're on a team with like 18 other people, 
the emphasis is not on winning because you can't control that. And if you as an individual are very focused on winning, then Dragon Boat is like not the sport for you because your chances of winning are tied to the performance of 18 other people. Yeah. But did you feel a level of competition, even though it was quote unquote for fun? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's where the highness comes from. I, I mean, I sound like a weird kind of sports addict at this moment, but when you're on the racing line and before the horn goes off, there is nothing equivalent to that. Like you have to have been practicing and be in training and then get to the point where you're racing and then be on the starting line in order to feel that. Hmm. And I think that does come from competition. But can you tie this back into the Nike spot? How does our conversation right now about sports relate to this dream crazier video? Well, I I think that... Yes, it was a bunch of Nike-sponsored athletes that appeared in the video, but the underlying premise behind the video spot itself, I think, is what what's the most impactful, and I think it's helping push people to understand. Oddly enough, I would say that achieving something quote-unquote crazy in a sport is probably a little bit easier than it is in the real world. Mm. And the reason why is that there's a level... For the most part, like, yes, there are some games where the outcome can be manipulated by a ref or a judge. But generally speaking, there is a level of objectivity and transparency around the rules, right? That's one part of it. So it's it's an interesting sort of way of trying to challenge yourself, but also knowing there's parameters around it. And then I'm not saying that that men have traditionally had the benefit because sports are kind of thrust onto them, but just having that as another sort of opportunity to, to better yourself and to not necessarily need to worry about how society perceives female athletes is helpful. I think you are right that traditionally men have been told, men have been given the opportunity for longer that they can play sports and should play sports. And I mean, the Nike language is extreme because they use the word crazy. A woman boxing was crazy. A woman dunking crazy. Coaching an NBA team crazy. And so they kind of push it to that like extremity of where the world perceives you as crazy if you do these things. But it's not just societal perceptions about sports and femininity. It's also the balance of women's lives not being inclusive of sports. So I have this friend in Hong Kong. She runs this nonprofit called Women in Sports Empowered. And what she says is that women, when they're professional and they're mothers, basically spend all their time doing those things. It's like work and childcare. And they're not encouraged or able to find time within those schedules to play sports. Mm. So it might not even be that they don't think it's appropriate it's that there is no time created for them Mm -hmm. so that's another facet of it what were you saying about the future about not knowing what this means for the future i'm just curious how this will impact the future of women in sports because i think that you're starting to see that there's a level of equality there maybe not financial but just in, in general, like, 
an openness to allow females to pursue it. It's whether they will take it. And I say that not because, like, there's just an opportunity that they might become disinterested in in actual physical sports. Maybe sports in the future is not playing soccer. It's playing Fortnite or whatever. Like, that still theoretically is a sport, right? Mm, really pushing the description of a well, sport I mean, there. I think that's what everyone believes to be the future of competition, right? So... To that point. I mean, gosh, that's like a whole other can of worms. But the thing is, the reason why I bring that up is that if you look at participation numbers, I think for the most part, physical sport participation is probably down. I'm sure you're adding way more gamers and those types of like esports athletes than you are physical athletes. I don't devalue video games. I play them. I have watched e-sport competitions on the computer, but they are not a replacement for physical activity. <laughs> Just the way humans are built, our bodies get so much good out of moving. And if a sport encourages you to do that, then all the better for you. Mm -hmm. Future of women in sports. I wonder actually if there's anything about historically sports having been created by men and for men. Do the rules for sports need to be changed more so that women can enjoy them or like that women's strengths are played to? I think so. Like if the invention of basketball and soccer, soccer football as games was originally thinking about men's you know, physiology, attributes. Yeah, 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 attributes, et cetera, then for a woman to enjoy that kind of equivalent sport more, would the rules need to adapt further? Yeah, or does it I become something else? Like, you know how, not to say that, I mean, I know that I'm talking about like physiological constraints and obviously not all men and women fit to like the same body types, but like volleyball and netball are sometimes more sports that play to women's natural strengths. As human bodies. Wait. But they also, yeah, like I think volleyball is a good example because if I understand correctly, like they change the height of the net. Yeah. I think the goal size in football, like soccer, could change. I just didn't wonder if doing that would make women, like regular women, not like professional athlete women, more likely to play and enjoy playing. Because the level of difficulty would match. Yes. The, not that the d difficulty okay. is lower. I'm not trying to say that, but that the game's rules fit to what you can do. Like they were made for you. I think that's fair. But obviously that's under the assumption and um, I'll potentially tread carefully here. But I mean, you just kind of have to admit that the physiological constraints are very real. And you just need to like develop games that are more fun, more engaging based on the group at hand. Like an eight-year-old will not play on a full-size goal because they're just too small. Like yeah. you just have to understand that that's the reality of it. Like you as a female, you wouldn't feel offended by that, would you? They have not lowered the rim for women's basketball, but there is an argument that they should. Yeah, like to that point, would you have an issue with that? No, because we are... Yeah, I'm just curious. Even though some women are tall... 
the majority of women are not as tall as men. And there's like no way to get around that. Like this is just saying, this is not me. We are worse people because we are shorter. This is just a reality. Yeah. So I don't think of it as like lowering a standard. It's making the game appropriate. Yeah. What's interesting to me is not like, oh, we're making it less challenging for women. It's like, how can we encourage even more regular people, right? The not Serena Williams, Simone Biles types, but just, you know, your everyday person to take up sports and enjoy playing it. And like, I think that's part of it. Though that's like totally not in this Nike spot at all. This Nike spot is kind of in a way saying like, you can do all of the same things that men can do. Today, for my segment, we are talking about being wealthy, successful, and miserable. And it comes from this piece Charles Duhigg wrote for the New York Times Future of Work vertical. This is also the basis of the Quartz article Alec Rose wrote about for the Monday's briefing, as you already mentioned. So Charles Duhigg is this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of The Power of Habit. He went to Harvard Business School and during the time that he was there, he felt and his class felt as though capitalism was like on the rise and it could only get better economically. Last year, he attended, this is the basis of the article, the 15th reunion of his graduating class and found that many of his former classmates weren't happy and in fact were miserable. Some extreme cases where folks were being sued, being pushed out by corporate politics, being backstabbed. But the main point of this article is to talk about the regular semi-happy folks also felt professional disappointment. And this is a quote, found their jobs to be unfulfilling, tedious, or just plain bad. One friend in particular who was earning loads of money, 1.2 million a year, said the following. I feel like I'm wasting my life, he told me. When I die, is anyone going to care that I earned an extra percentage point of return? My work feels totally meaningless. He recognized the incredible privilege of his pay and status, but his anguish seemed genuine. Quote, if you spend 12 hours a day doing work you hate, at some point it doesn't matter what your paycheck says, he told me. There's no magic salary at which a bad job becomes good. He had received an offer at a startup and he would have loved to take it, but it paid half as much and he felt locked into a lifestyle that made this pay cut impossible. That that part is really interesting. Locked into a lifestyle. That part's always funny to me. This, I mean, that's subjective, right? Well, yes and no. It's like... I remember reading an article about when when things went south for like people in finance. It was like, oh, my kid goes to this school and like I am struggling to pull them out and move them to that school because X, Y, Z. Not to say that they can't, but okay, it's like that is that's what they mean by lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And it's like eating out and the kind of groceries you buy or the supermarket that you go to or how many drinks you order with dinner. And I think what it's related to in this article is that that lifestyle also does not give you necessarily a great deal of professional satisfaction. 
So if you just give me a second, I will get to a part where I ask you a question. In the mid-1980s, 61% of workers said they were satisfied with their jobs. And recently in 2010, only 43% were dissatisfied. The rest were unhappy to neutral. So without looking at my notes, do you remember what was said as to the reason behind this discontent? Lack of purpose or... Yeah. Lack of meaningful work. Yeah. Does that ring true for you? For me personally? Or Does, do I understand what... Do you think that makes sense? Through? Totally. 100%. Because it's actually not really numerically... It's a feeling. It's yeah, not objectively like, measured. This article in particular doesn't go into it like a study necessarily. So what it does say is like, you know, 61% of workers used to be happy with their jobs. Now only 43% are happy. It doesn't really have scientific evidence as to why they've become less happy. But Duhigg says he thinks his sense is that the work is no longer worth the effort. Makes sense to me. I mean, I think that that's the one thing is a lot of things that we look for in our lives is like, it's some sort of like value, right? And that value more often than not is weighted into financial value. Like the the work I put in will pay me this much. But but we also have to, if you're saying that, you're also kind of saying that that has changed in the last 30 years. As in previously, either, you know, people were always looking for satisfaction in their jobs and they used to find it and they no longer do. Or previous to 30 years ago, people didn't look for the same kind of satisfaction with their jobs. I think that the overall cost of living probably factors into that as well. Mm. I mean, this is probably from a from an American POV, but what I think are, are things that are inherently challenging is it's a bunch of things coming together, right? But the things that previously were afforded to you 30 years ago are either now more expensive and that's compounded by the fact that the expectation of what you should be consuming, the aspirations are fully in your face every single day you mm-hmm. you click on Instagram, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but I, I remember th- when I was like 24, 25, I was like, in Hong Kong, probably two or three years in. And for whatever reason, I was so enamored with the, all the things that Hong Kong does a great job of shoving in your face, like nice cars, nice watches and stuff. And that was around the time that I met Jasper Wong, who happens to be like one of my best friends. And he was the founder of Pow Wow, this art festival that's now pretty much a, a massive global affair. But anyways, he really kind of turned the whole thing on his head when he's like, well, there's value in the process and making sure that you are valuing things that are not necessarily monetary. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just changed everything for me. So mm-hmm. nowadays, like, yeah, you need to pay bills. I'm not telling everyone to just like go join a commune or anything, but it's that purpose, I think, has fundamentally been something I seek and maybe I'm good at finding purpose in my work. Yeah. That was something I wanted to talk about because I suspect that it really comes down to how you frame your work. 
And even the nature of the work might not change and someone else might do the same thing I do, but their satisfaction with their job is going to be very different from mine, depending on how we frame what we do, how we tell that story to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Finding purpose in your work is not actually easy. I think it's actually pretty, pretty difficult and pretty challenging. Yeah, I think that's the... Also, not everyone has the skill set to allow them to pursue meaningful, purpose-driven work. Like if you go to school for finance and you're a banker, like I think you're kind of locked in unless you leave that industry, potentially. Well, I've never worked in finance, so I don't know how you find purpose in that, but you get my point. Duhigg mentions it as well. There are possibilities that what you do in finance does lead to good work down the line somewhere for someone, but you never see the results in your actual work. And that's mm-hmm. a difference too, as to whether you find satisfaction with your professional life is if you see meaningful effects brought about from what you do, like in front of your face. So for you, do you feel as though this sentiment is pretty universal, even though it the title suggests America's professional elite, like as in America, like do you think that your friends that are in Asia, in Europe are all sort of going through this similar crisis? Well, I have a suspicion and I feel like I have just been saying this for several episodes now. I have a suspicion that the reason in general people are more discontent with their professional lives is because we have the increasing sensation that capitalism and consumerism has been terrible for the planet. Our planet is dying and we are urgently in need of a change. So I think it's related to that. I think that's what me and my friends, people my age talk about is that if, if we're at this point in time where, you know, we're deciding to not have kids because why would you bring a kid into a world where they're going to have to fight other kids for resources down the line? You know, what is our point for being here on this planet and what can we do to like turn this thing around? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if people in the fifties felt that way. Like it seems like just 60 years ago, the feeling was that like resources are infinite. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was also a different point in time when the disparity was less pronounced and like your CEO salary was not hundreds of multiples larger than the average employee. Where this essay winds up going at the end is, is different from the beginning. It winds up asking, you know, what is a quote, good job? And there's another quote I wanted to read. He says, some will celebrate billionaires as examples of this nation's greatness, while others will pillory them as evidence of an economy gone astray. Through all of that, it's worth keeping in mind that the concept of a good job is inherently complicated because ultimately it's a conversation about what we value, whether individually or collectively. Even for Americans who live frighteningly close to the bone, like the janitors studied by Warshanowski and Dutton, a job is usually more than just a means to a paycheck. It's a source of purpose and meaning, a place in the world. You know, to answer your question about, you know, is this universal? It's very hard to be, for me to say because I do, my mind operates in a very Western-centric way, despite having lived in Hong Kong for a long time. 
And what they're saying about individual and collective value definitely changes once you go to a different country and you're in a different culture. Because like, for example, let's say you are in Hong Kong and you live with your parents and maybe even your grandparents, then maybe for you, what is a good job is what allows you to contribute to the household. And it doesn't have to be something purposeful beyond that. And that is a kind of purpose. It's like, it's a very important individual value to take care of your family. Like, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying is like purpose and value are are things that are subjective as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to Scott about this. Maybe, maybe running a media startup doesn't necessarily bring a lot of financial reward up front, but it does lend a lot of flexibility. Like if I want to go to Japan next week and work remotely, I can do that, right? Or if I want to explore having a conversation with this person, like I have a platform to do it, you know? And I think those are the things that I place immense value on that money itself cannot buy. And I'm also really, really enamored with things that money cannot buy. Right. I mean, the fl- if we talk about ourselves personally and the jobs that we do, I do appreciate that making gives me flexibility and a lot of freedom that I probably would not have somewhere else. And I also get to work remotely while studying, and that's a huge privilege. But on top of that, you know, back to what we were talking about, about how you frame things to yourself, the story that you tell yourself, I choose to see the work that I do at making as good on a larger level, like good for a greater group of people. And I'm not saying I'm not saving lives. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I do see the stories we publish and the community we build as something that is improving the world in some way. And I know I sound like such a hippie person, but that is what I tell myself in my head. And like, I don't think I would do this job without that. Yeah. Like you couldn't give me all of the other perks of flexibility and working remotely, et cetera, and then take that away from me. And I don't know that I would still be in it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Do you feel that there there was a challenge to find purpose at Macon? Or do you think that it's pretty innate within the DNA? Huh. I mean, it's really hard to say. One thing Duhigg says is like, your life as it progresses changes the way that you see your past. So like you being at Macon now changes how you think about your time at Hypebeast. And it's hard to control that. Yeah. It's hard to say, oh, back then I felt like this. And so probably that's still true now. Instead, everything you experience after will affect your memory of it. So it's hard for me to say, okay, when I first started working for Macon, did I feel the same sense of value? Because now I feel like I just am telling myself that I've been in it for that reason. So I, I guess the the next part of this conversation is, despite the fact that people are unhappy, their inability to change their situation, what does that come down to? Mm. And if they don't change it, is it because they actually don't actually care that much? Mm. 
Hmm. That's my thing. I think like a lot of people complain a lot, but mm-hmm. it's never to the breaking point of them doing something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me is like, well, you know what? Like people are probably down to help you be happier. Like your support slash friend group probably want to see you happy and they're down to support you. Not everyone, but some I'm sure. But if you don't personally take the leap, then it's honestly just all, it's all talk, right? I don't know what it is. Yeah, I've had this conversation before with other people as well. Like, I don't know what it is that makes people say something out loud. Like, I am unhappy with my current life situation and I would really like to do X, Y, Z. And then they don't do it. And obviously, yes, there's like a huge segment of these people who maybe financially are not able to, or they have responsibilities or they have dependents. And I understand that there are people whose life situations are like that, but there's also a portion of these people who totally can do the things that they say they're going to do. And then they don't. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that it comes back to that question that arose last week, where just because you're not currently involved in a creative profession, doesn't mean you can't take the baby steps to achieve that. Yeah. You know, like, I I would like to think that if there's 24 hours in a day, not every single waking hour spent working, like there's something that can be cut. Because the reason why it can be cut is because it's deprioritized. If yeah. playing Candy Crush is taking up 30 minutes of your day, I'm using the worst example possible, obviously. I know, obviously, I understand. But that could be replaced with 30 minutes of tutorial videos on how to use Illustrator, for example. Yeah, definitely. Like you could, it's very easy to force rank stuff if you really want to, but it's just what, what becomes a priority and what becomes something that you value. Yeah. I mean, we don't have everything we're saying from this point is just theoretical and we totally do not have studies on this stuff. But part of what I suspect to be the problem is that people think they need to be good immediately at something. So yeah. They don't think, oh, 30 minutes of watching a tutorial on Illustrator is not getting me towards this goal of being a famous, well-paid illustrator for the New York Times. It is. It's just, you know, many years Mm -hmm. in advance of that. So where Duhigg thinks this comes from, like people not taking the leap when they could take the leap, is based off of how your mm, motivation has been built. And this is what people were attracted to in Alec Rose's write-up on the Monday briefing because Duhigg suggests that being a late bloomer, failing a lot early in life teaches you something. It trains you to be more able to navigate difficulties like you were saying about sports, you know, navigate repeated failure and mistakes and then therefore have more courage to take risks and find contentment in more creative ways. Yeah. And that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Even though I feel like your perception of being a late bloomer or not could also be very subjective. Because every person I've met that's younger than me has also had the expectation of needing to achieve more at their age. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, but you, you get the point. Do I think that I would have achieved more by now? I I did not pre-ask myself this question prior to recording this. So um, I think in a way, yes, 
but I also had like a very narrow idea of what I thought I was going to achieve. And what I have wound up achieving is not lesser, but it's just different. It's different. Yeah. It is just different from what I thought. What yeah. about you? Did you have an expectation of what you would have achieved by this point in your life? I think it ebbs and flows. Like, depending on your happiness levels, like, if honestly, if you're happy, then that pursuit of needing to achieve more is maybe diminished. But also in my quote-unquote older age, I just, fuck, I don't, I don't, I think there's certain things by within my lifetime that will be very challenging, but it's just like interesting to also pursue goals that have no ending either. And I think it takes a level of commitment mm. to the cause to like get behind something where you'll never actually finish. So. Yeah. I also try to not really have an ego. So the expectation of where I should be and where I need to be relative to other people, I don't really have that. Or I've tried to significantly reduce it. I've been trying to steer away from the word happiness. And I think I've also been doing that in this conversation because I think happiness is not the right way to frame the goal. I like the word satisfaction more like professional satisfaction and contentment is maybe better too. It feels like a very transient feeling. It's up to you how you want to define it, I think. Yeah, just my own, my own framing yeah. of my life story. That's it from me. Yeah. Should we cap it off for the day? Yes. I think that's a good place to cap things off. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N. You can subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us individually at Sharice at Macon.com and Eugene at Macon.com. But even easier, you can just DM at Macon on Instagram and someone will respond. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.